hours worth of stuff that we'll try to go through in about an hour and 45 minutes so that you can get on to the fourth. I'm just kidding. Uh, it is a big day. Uh, and, and just to, to say, just right up front, it was already mentioned to me once. I'm just going to just get this out of the way. I did not wear a red and white blue shirt, red and white and blue shirt, because today is the 4th of July. Got home late last night, and I didn't want to iron. So this, this shirt didn't require ironing. Irony. You got it when it came out of the closet this morning. So it's completely co- co- coincidental. Uh, but we are in Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13 is going to be the text. Uh, to this point in Hebrews, it's really the beginning of a new section, a new, uh, a new focus for the writer of Hebrews. To this point, he has really been addressing the greatness of Jesus and showing us how Jesus is greater than all the, the, all the works that God has done previous to him. He's our great messenger. If you just think through the, the series that we've been working through, he's our great messenger. He's higher than angels. He's greater than the prophets sent with God's word to, to God's people. He's, he's our great savior. He's a greater Moses. He's our great rest. It, all the ways that we seek to rest, to, to find relaxation, to not do anything, to lay our heads down and, and, and go to sleep at night, to take a nap in the afternoon. None of those are really going to truly give us rest if our focus, if our faith is not in Jesus Christ, our great rest. He is our great high priest, our sustainer, our forerunner, and as such, he is an anchor, a steadfast anchor for our soul. He, his role as high priest is so great that it couldn't even be held or, or uh, the, the, the priesthood that was established in the old covenant couldn't even hold it. It had to have a whole other priesthood, a whole other order of priests. It's, it's a greater priesthood that he serves in, a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, in which he serves as the greatest mediator of all times between us and God. He is greater. Now, Having established the superiority of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the author of Hebrews now turns, not simply to look at what Jesus, who Jesus is and the, and, and the ministry roles that he has filled, but he's looking at the purpose of the ministry. He's going to begin to focus on the purpose of Jesus' ministry, namely the covenant he came to mediate. And that's where we're, we're focusing in and we're looking today. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13 is where we'll read. And the word of the Lord says this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. The superiority again, right? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I just want to just stop there and just focus on that line. I showed no concern for them. They didn't keep his covenant and he shows no... That's... that's oh, gosh, that... that mm. I I would pray that that would never be said of us. I would long that that statement would never be true of any person sitting in this church or that calls this church their home. That's a strong statement. For for this, going, going on, beginning in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, help us now. So we just sit and consider these words, some of them extremely encouraging some of them are very strong and, and difficult to consider. I, I just pray that you'd speak, that your Holy Spirit would do his work to lead us to truth, to point us to Jesus. And as I sit and think on the people that are sitting in this room to listen and consider these words, I would pray, Father, that you would lead us to you, bring us to you, that, that Father, there would be no one here today or no one listening in 
uh, over a recording that wouldn't be able to claim that they know you and that you are their God and that you are their, that they are your people and that you would work to bring any of them that aren't in this moment that, that you'd bring them to you today. Father, I pray these things for your glory and, and for the good of your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the author of Hebrews has left, as we've walked through this, this letter, the author of Hebrews has left little room to debate Jesus' greatness in contrast to all the work that God has done in the world to this point, or to the point of Christ coming, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, dying sacrificially, rising victoriously. There, there has been little room left for any kind of debate there. All the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, he tells us, he reminds us that to, to keep our eyes on Jesus, and this is going to be the, the exhortation or the command over and over through this letter. It has been that uh, through this letter, and it will continue to be to consider Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep him front and center. And, and he says in, in Hebrews 3.1 that he is the apostle and the high priest of our, our, our confession. He is God's messenger sent to us. He's the sent one from God who's God's representative to us, who makes God known for us. And, and Jesus then is now our high priest that, that coming from God, he comes from God. And now as our high priest, he goes back to God and he stands in God's presence and he mediates on our behalf. And it, and this work is greater than any other ministry that has ever been accomplished, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than Joshua, greater than all those who have, 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 have such a, a prevalent and prominent role in the redemptive history of God's work in the world. But why is it so much greater? What makes Jesus' work so great? And, and, and this really is going to be the point of the next several series. What makes this ministry so great? And, and, and he begins right here in verse 6 to, to tell us what's so great about it. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus' ministry, this is, I think, the point for today. It's going to be the kind of the overriding point of the next several weeks. Jesus' ministry is greater than that of prophets and priests because by it he mediated a new and greater covenant between God and his people. This is the point that the author of Hebrews has been building towards. Did we need and do we need to continue to remember the greatness of Jesus? Absolutely. But to know the greatness of Jesus and not understand the greatness of the covenant that he mediated, your, your, your information is incomplete. There's plenty of people that can look at Jesus and point to him as a great teacher, as a, as a good man, as a powerful person, one sent from God. And they have no understanding of the covenant that he mediates, no intimacy with him as a savior because they have ignored or displaced or, 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 or totally disregarded the covenant that he has come to establish between God and his people. Yes, we need to know that Jesus is great. Please don't ever hear me say anything different. Don't imply that because I'm emphasizing the, the, the height and importance of this covenant that I'm in any way diminishing. We, we need the greatness of Jesus so that we can have the greatness of this new and greater covenant. They work together. It's necessary to understand them both. And the, the author of Hebrews has been building to this crescendo, this point, this, this, this celebration that Jesus and his great ministry have established for us an even greater covenant than has ever been worked or established between God and man before. And therefore, we must hold fast our confession. We must never take our eyes off Jesus. We must do all we can not to drift from him. And when we do, we must call each other back. We must reorient one another towards Jesus Christ and his work uh, on our behalf. That, that, that's the call. That's the expectation of the author of Hebrews to this Christian people. And he shows us this greatness in the same way that he's shown us the greatness of Jesus all along. By contrasting it to what's come before. And so what I'm going to do from this text today is, is I'm going to seek to try to answer three questions. One... The first one will be, what is a covenant? The second will be, what, what's the fault of the old covenant that's mentioned in verses 7 and 8 uh, through uh, 10, uh, or I'm sorry, 9. And, and then, why is the new covenant so great, or what makes the new covenant so great? I'm going to seek to answer those three questions. For, the first one isn't exactly answered in the text, but we can kind of see the biblical flow, and I'm going to seek to help you understand what is a covenant. Because I think, 
I could be wrong about this. I don't think it's a word we go around using. When's the last time you talked to somebody about a covenant that you're going to enter into? Or if you talked to, to someone recently about a covenant, how often do you use that word? Probably not as often as, as, as most of us. It's, it's just not probably going to be in a top 100 words that we use when we're engaging and having conversation about life in this world. So I think it's easy for us to misunderstand or, or not quite fully comprehend what it's about. So, so the definition for our time today could have done this from another pl- a number of places, but I, I appreciated this, this, uh, the, Baker, um, the Baker Encyclopedia of Biblical, um, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. That's the name of the resource I'm about to use. I appreciated that they drew out two perspectives. And so I just thought it would be a good, concise way to define it for us. So what, what is a covenant? It's an interpersonal framework of trust, responsibilities, and benefits with broad application to almost every human relationship from personal friendship to international trade agreements. So we stop right there. That's the first part that I want to focus on. An interpersonal framework of trust, responsibilities, and benefits with application to almost every human relationship. So, so there's trust, responsibilities, and benefits with, with application to almost every human relationship. So, so we don't walk around forming these covenants in official ways most often. But there are implied covenants that we exist in. When we have friendships with people, there's an implied expectation both of a, a give and take. There's an expectation that we live in these agreements together. In some ways, we officially make these covenants real. In marriage, for example, it is a, it is a covenant relationship in which a bride and a groom stand opposite one another and pronounce oaths, promises that they are going to live up to. Not for what they can get, but often those oaths or, or those promises, those vows, are what I'm going to be for you, how I'm going to commit to you, how I am going to stay faithful for you. The intent is always looking at the other party, knowing that in doing so, that there's a mutual benefit. So one of the most beautiful places I think that this can be described in, in Scripture or demonstrated in Scripture is in Ephesians 5, 21, I think it's 21 through 31, there's the, the roles of husbands and wives laid out inside the church. And the wife is called to submit to her own husband. The husband is called to love his wife as, as Christ loved the church. And there's this beautiful way in which the, the scripture calls them to look to each other and live for the good of the other. But then it goes down a little bit further, and we often stop at those two initial roles. It goes down just a little bit further, and it speaks about how this is an image of Christ and his church. And it says that Christ washes his church with the water of the word. And then it tells us why he does it. So that he can present her, the bride, the church, to himself. There's a mutual benefit in it. There's a a good thing that comes to Christ in it. As he gives of himself and loves sacrificially, purposefully, beneficially for the good of the church, he gains something as well. Because as these covenant relationships are formed, there's such a weaving together that soon it's difficult to say that what happens to this party in the covenant doesn't, it's impossible to affect one without the other. So when Paul, is perse- Paul, formerly known as Saul, is persecuting the church, Jesus doesn't approach him and say, why are you per- persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? There's this beautiful union that's established inside of these covenant relationships. There's forms of trust and responsibility on both sides and benefits for both parties that we get to see work out. Another way that we see this working commonly, commonly, at least in our church, is that members of this church sign a covenant. We make covenant to one another. If you have joined this church, you have entered into a covenant relationship with other members of the church that you're going to strive to live the glory of God, that you're going to seek God first as imperfectly as we might do it, that you're going to seek God first, that you're going to study his word, you're going to be obedient to his word, that you're going to serve one another, that you're going to uh, uh, live, examine lives together. And there's benefit that comes to people and, 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 and blessing that comes to people that, that, as we covenant together. Because as we do these things together, as we look at one another and begin to live together in that way, we begin to enjoy the blessings of God through other people. We sign these covenants, and in signing those covenants to the church, the, covenant, the, the church turns around and says, you know what, we're going to seek to provide you opportunity to be a part of this community, to, to welcome and love you and serve you and, and, and treat you as 
family. And then, and then that we're going to seek to teach you and see you matured in the faith and grown in the word of God. And, and that benefit then extends to the fact that, that we give opportunity to service in, in ways to members that we would restrict from those who won't covenant with us. If a person wants to teach, we would say, you must be a member. If you want the responsibility and the opportunity to teach and, and, and exp- explain the scripture to people, we're going to ask that you step in and join and submit yourself to the life of the other believers in this church. There's ways in which this works out. There's a number of different ways, there are a number of different things that, that we could look at to see the covenants. Now, some people will immediately move to contracts, like I signed a contract on a car payment or something like that. And it's not that there can't be some picture of it, but that's such a mechanical process that doesn't require real trust. It's all leveraged based on, on other, other things, and there's no necessarily no mutual uh, benefit that, that we, don't, we don't want to look at it just a mechanical contract and move to this place. It's an interpersonal framework of trust, responsibilities, and benefits with broad application to almost every human relationship. Now, it goes a bit further, the second half of this definition. In Scripture, in Scripture, covenant is also the most comprehensive concept covering an individual's relationship to God. So I want you to take the spouse... The, the opposing spouse in the marriage, or the, the other members of the church as you covenant to join in. And I want you to see God on the other side of that covenant that you're entering into, that there's blessing and, and, and trust and, and benefit that comes from that side, responsibilities for God. But the same is true for us is that we're to, to, to meet him as imperfectly as we do. But that's the idea that this is that this covenant, this idea of covenant, defines and explains, biblically speaking, every relationship with God, every human relationship with God. You're either in covenant with Him or you're not. Right? It's, it's God who's condescended to enter into covenant with man. It's God who's determined that He would condescend to engage with us and he's done that through making promises and saying I am going to do this thing on behalf of these people who are faithless let me just give you a biblical just flow real quickly through the bible just to see these covenants now personally I believe the bible is put together and the thread and, and, and story of Scripture can be seen in these covenants. Not everybody agrees with that. There's people in this room that wouldn't necessarily agree with that. But, but since I'm the one standing up here, this is the way we're going to do it. <laughs> this is the way I would see it. So, so, so the first, I would say, the first biblical covenant that I would say that you can see is the covenant with Adam. Now, even, even among covenant theologians, that's what this is called. Even among covenant theologians, this is, there's disagreement about this. And then there's dis- disagreements about what, the way it's administered, even with those who would agree. And, and here's why there's a debate or a disagreement about this covenant with Adam. Because the word covenant is never used in reference to Adam. So, so there's a lot of like, oh, the word covenant is never used. And, and, and part of the problem is in the Hebrew, the word covenant and, and the making of a covenant is a Hebrew word cutting. And there's a, 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 an indication of death and the shedding of blood. And, and there's, there's sacrifices involved. And obviously before, before sin entered the world, it's very difficult to talk about the cutting and bleeding and all the stuff that goes along with the idea or the word covenant in Hebrew. So, so that may be part of the reason. But... It was actually Stephen Wellam who, who finally convinced me of this. I'd wrestled with it for a number of years and didn't know whether, whether to fall. Yes, it did. Yes, there is a covenant. No, there's not a covenant. Stephen Wellam, Wellam in his book, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants, uh, helped me finally understand it, that you can see all the elements of a covenant there, even though the word covenant isn't used. And I don't know that he uses this illustration, but it's the same with the word Trinity. We know that God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, equally God, totally God. But the word Trinity is never in the Bible, right? So, so does the Trinity exist? Absolutely, yes, it does. Doctrinally, all the ways I can show it's there. We, we can present all the verses, but the word's not there. So, so covenant may not actually be there, but all the elements are there, all, all the 
all the ideas of trust, expectation, responsibility, blessings, and, and, and even consequences if they break the covenant. God gave, God said, this is what I'm giving you, the abundance of everything. Here's the one restriction. Don't eat this, this fruit from this tree. If you eat it, when you eat it, you will surely die. If you don't eat it, the implied idea is that you will live forever in my abundance, right? So there's this covenant agreement that is being established. Now, that we, that's in Genesis 1 through 3. You can go and you can look at it. And then I would encourage you to compare it to the covenant that he makes with Noah, in which there truly is the word covenant is used. Genesis 6, 9 through 7, Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, verse 17, you can read about this. There's a number of times that the, the covenant is referenced in which God is going to enter into covenant with Noah, his offspring, with all of creation, with all of the animals and plants and animals. He's not going to destroy the earth by flood again, and he puts a rainbow in the sky to seal it. And then he tells Noah and his sons, go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, Here's some more food, more provision for you. I'm giving you this food to eat. You can add to the fruits and the vegetables, the fruits of the trees, the vegetables of the land. You can add to that animals. Uh, and, and he gives them instruction about food. He provides for them abundantly. And he calls them to live in light of that covenant. And, and, and that's another way that that reflects back on the covenant with Adam because it's the same covenant language. Then there's the covenant with Abraham. He enters into covenant with Abraham. We've talked about this a little bit in the days past. But Abraham is, uh, you can read about this, Genesis 15 through 17. He, he promises to Abraham offspring. As, mu- as many as the stars in the sky, as, as numerous as the sea on the seashore. Um, or I mean, not the sea, the sands on the seashore. The, there, there's one sea out there. The sand on the seashore. Um, and then he promises land for them to live in, and he promises them uh, 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 that through Abraham and his offspring, individual offspring, Paul calls, out, calls that out in Galatians, an individual offspring, one of his offspring, through that offspring, God is going to bless all nations. In, in every one of these, God has fulfilled his promise. He's lived up to what he said he's going to do. Note, mankind's the one that struggles. Then there's the covenant with Moses, Israel, Sinai. Depending on what you're focusing on, different people will call it different things. It's either the Mosaic covenant or the, uh, the covenant at Sinai or Sinai covenant or something like that. It's in Exodus 19 through 20. Now, God, this is the one, I'll just point out, this is the one that's being referenced in the first part of this, pro- this, this prophecy from Jeremiah that our author is referencing in verses 8 through 12. He talks about this covenant, this old covenant that he made, that God made with the fathers of the Israelites um, on the day when he took them out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is that covenant that he's referring to. And he enters into covenant with them. And he says, I'm going to be your God. And you're you're going to be my people. And he gives them a law to live by. And he does this through Moses, who is interesting, when you stop and think about what Moses did, was the people were frightened by the lightning and the thunder and the clouds surrounding the mountaintop, and they hear the voice of God, and they're like, Moses, he's going to kill us. You need to speak for us. And so what Moses does is he goes up on the mountain to God and meets with God on behalf of the people, and then he comes back down and brings God's word to God's people. And he says, this is the terms of the covenant. And so we see this, this, this apostle from God and this mediator with God being worked out in Moses. Moses is kind of the covenant head. He's the mediator of this covenant. He was God's spokesman to the nation of Israel, and he was Israel's representative on the mountain before God. Now, it's interesting because if this covenant hadn't been formed and hadn't been shaped, the very next covenant would have no standing or foundation to stand on. That's the covenant with David. David's king of Israel, and God promises David, as one who is of his people, according to this covenant with Israel, he's given this covenant to David, and he says, I'm going to raise up and establish an eternal king from your line who is going to reign in an eternal kingdom. And so you've seen this flow, God working and interacting with people, engaging with them, and as he does over and over and over through the biblical text, we see it's always done within covenant doesn't mean that everyone who has ever existed or ever is mentioned in the scripture are part of that covenant 
But he is going to engage them in some way, at least in the biblical text, we see it's functioning through covenant, which leads us to the new covenant or the, or the covenant that's expressed in the New Testament, the, the covenant that is worked out and that our author is plainly pointing to today, the covenant that's been mediated by Jesus Christ, who I would contend is actually the fulfillment of all the other covenant heads. He's a greater Adam, a better Adam. He did what Adam didn't do. He's a better Noah. He's a better Abraham. He's a greater Moses. He is certainly greater than David and ultimately the fulfillment the, the, the fulfillment or the, the, the antitype to their type. So he's a type. these things are a type of Christ and he is that fulfillment. He is standing here in the flesh for us to see. That all the ways that these covenants were limited, he has come and he has fulfilled them all. This is the covenant and the way that they have flowed through Scripture. So, so what is then? We, we've seen those covenants biblically or, or laid out through Scripture. What's the fault of the old covenant that's referenced here? So, so he comes down, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as, as the covenant he mediates is better, since this is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, now, now we know that that covenant, based on the text he's going to share from Jeremiah, we know that that covenant that he's talking to is the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant that he entered into with Moses. Now, if that covenant was faultless, there'd be no reason for a new covenant. Well, what's the fault with that covenant? What's wrong with that covenant? Like, did God do something? Did he make a mistake? Did, did he screw something up? No, that, 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 that's not what he's saying. He can't possibly be saying that. If, if God's the, the, the mistake maker, if God's the one messing things up, then why in the world would we even care if he brings a new covenant? Is he going to get it right this time? No, that, that's, not the, that's not the point of this author. The author's pointing us to the fault so that we can begin to, to understand what, what, what this fault is. Now, I want to be careful here. I, I, I need to say this. I want you to understand where I'm coming from. I do not intend, I don't want us to ever diminish the value, the importance, or the greatness of the old covenant. Like, as we sit here today, I don't want us to look back into the Old Testament and say that was a lesser work of God or is less great in some way, or that it was, it was, um, it was faulty and, and God messed up and that was plan A, but now God figured out his mistake and this is plan B and it's a better plan. It is a better plan. It is a greater covenant. But it's not because in some way that we look at the law and say the law is bad. The law is from God. In, inherently, every, every covenant that God enters into with mankind is great because God has determined and condescended to work with us, to enter into agreement with us. If you look back on the covenants that we mentioned, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel, uh, David, the failure in those covenants was never God. He's not the one that's dropping the ball in the covenants. But they serve a purpose, and they do exactly what he intends them to do. But we have to recognize that there is a fault. We have to see that there is a fault because our author highlights this fault. He points us to see it. So what is the fault? If you look at verse 7 into 8, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. So there's no reason that a second exists except that the first one didn't do all that it could. Or, or it was faulted. For he finds fault with them. Again. The fault falls not on God and his side of the covenant, but those he made the covenant with. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I, I think that we should be able to see that, that, this is, that there's really two ways in which we could de define this and describe it. The, the, the fault of the old covenant first, I would say the fault in the old covenant is found in what it couldn't accomplish. It's not to suggest that the law is imperfect or the law itself is flawed. It is from God. It is right. It is good. It demonstrates the holiness of God. It's actually by the law that we're able to identify Jesus, the Messiah, as one who is sinless because he lived it perfectly. So without the old covenant, it's even difficult to understand how we would identify the mediator of the new and greater covenant. Like it, we, It's necessary. Here's the problem with the law. 
As it, was, uh, as, as it was given to Israel, it was written on these two stone tablets, or at least the Ten Commandments were, written on these two stone tablets and given to them as an external, here are the rules that you must obey to, in order to continue living in this covenant. Now, we know just from a modern uh, illustration exercise here, when we make a law, what does it guarantee? No, yeah, Exactly. Because the law is limited in its ability to bring transformation or obedience to itself. What we, the more laws we, and we make a lot of them, right? Like there's, there's laws on the books that we don't even know are there anymore and that would, we'd read them and like we'd be astounded that they ever wrote this law. But we keep making these laws and we feel like, oh, if there's a problem, we make a law for it. We fix it with a law. And what a law really demonstrates to us who the lawbreakers are. So when you think about God's law, what did it do? It showed us who the lawbreakers are. It revealed sin. It pointed us to our need for a Savior. But in Christ's coming, it's also going to have identify the one who is sinless and fulfills that law. So the law by itself can't accomplish transformation. And so by itself, it's limited. It's faulted, not because the law is faulty, but because the one who receives it is faulty. Then this is the other side of this Discussion. The second way I would say this is that the fault of the Old Covenant is found in not in what it couldn't accomplish, but what we couldn't do. Because we are unable to obey any law perfectly. Even the most medi- mediocre laws, even the smallest, least controversial laws. And in fact, I think sometimes we break those on purpose. Like, we just don't care because I'm not going to get caught. Ah, you know, I can speed 5, 10 miles an hour over 15, 20. If traffic's flowing, I just go with traffic. And how do we treat that law? Now, not all of us do. I know there's some rule followers in here that you're bound and determined to stay on that. But many of us, if not most of us, read those signs and say, ah, this is what they really mean. Right? It, it just identifies, it reveals the fact that not only can we not obey, but we don't really want to obey. And, and, and an even greater problem with this in the Old Covenant is that the ones that were mediating the covenant themselves had a problem. They couldn't obey, and they didn't want to obey. That's why the, earlier in the text, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, uh, he's, he's, he's made this point, that this, this powerful point that these priests were were sinners themselves and were having to take care of their own sin in addition to the sin of the people so here are these people who are mediating the covenant between the 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 nation of israel and god and they got their own sin and so not only do they continue in sin they don't want to stop sinning they see they see the consequence i don't want the consequence but i want this shiny little thing the world offers more and so these mediators of the covenant were sinners themselves, and so they're always working to satisfy and deal with the sin of, of, of the nation of Israel and their own sin themselves. And so here's this, here's this dynamic that develops. In making up for or seeking to atone for sin, their job was never done. And then people just kept on sinning. And as they're, as they're trying to atone for sin, they're, they're atoning for sin in a sinful way, and even that sin's got to be atoned for, and this is just... When does the cycle end? You're stuck. That's the reason the picture of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the majesty of God behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies that he's entered in and he has sat down because he has satisfied the problem of sin. And so that's why that picture is so powerful. Because the work of the priest, the work of the mediator of that old covenant Because of the sin of Israel never ending, and because of the sin of the mediator never ending, their work is never done. I got to thinking about this this week in my history of work in aviation. I uh, I was a Black Hawk mechanic in the Army. It's where I started at. Did that for, uh, well, I was in the Army for about six years. I did that for about four. Did did another helicopter before. It doesn't matter. But it, it was constant, constant work. I don't know if you know this about things that we make in this world, but they break, right? Like, it's just, this, they break. 
And so between preventative maintenance and inspections and then just the aircraft breaking, there was always more work to be done. And then we had to determine which, which ways in which the aircraft broke would actually ground it and not allow it to fly, and which brakes of the aircraft could we stomach and deal with the risk and let it continue to fly. Because it's always broken. When it's on the ground, I'm working on it. In anticipation of getting it off the ground so it could fly, and as soon as it lands, there's more stuff to deal with. And even if we weren't flying a lot, the calendar keeps ticking. And I don't know if you know this about any kind of... It is true of vehicles, it's definitely true of aircraft. The longer they sit, the worse they are. They need to move, they need to operate. Sitting brings wear and tear, and they end up breaking if they sit too long. It's a crazy thing. This world is always falling apart. Our work is never done. That's why the author of Hebrews is so intent upon pointing us to Jesus to find rest, because he sat down. Because his work is finished. The fault of the covenant is this, that we can't do what's necessary to enter into rest. And, 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 and it can't do for us what's necessary to bring us into rest. Because it's intentionally limited. It's purposed that way. But it's still incomplete. It's faulted. And so it's necessary and always has been necessary that he bring another covenant which brings us to our new and better our greater covenant the new covenant so what makes this covenant so great actually this this question is going to be answered over the next several weeks we're going to look at the sacrifice the atonement the the redemption that it brings all these things in which it's greater than those that have come before but specifically the the author here is going to highlight The foundation upon which it is built is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since, since because, this is why it's better, it's enacted on better promises. And then he walks through and begins to show us how it's better by referencing a passage from Jeremiah in which Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, identifies the fault of the original or the first covenant Looking forward to the establishment of this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. And and, and our author says this, this is only necessary because of the fault of the first. He blames them. He finds fault with them that he made it with. They are the fault. They are the problem. Why why is this so so great? I, I... we, we, we could jump immediately into the promises that are laid out here in verses 10 through 12, but, but let me just highlight the fact that this new covenant, it doesn't carry the same fault as the old covenant. It's clearly implied in this text. The old, it was faulted. He found fault in it and needed, demanded, decided he was going to bring a new covenant. But this new covenant is faultless. This, this covenant is not touched by that fault in any way. The, the, the one mediating it, it doesn't have to deal with his own sin. The, the people of the covenant are, are being made able to endure in it. They're being equipped to, to obey. God is in the process of, of, let me say that differently. It, actually, I'm going to just share this verse. I'm a, I'm a, let, let me just share this verse that, in, in the process of renewing his old covenant with the generation that's standing at the edge of the Jordan. So, so here's God, the Father, this generation that has, has wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because the first generation of, of Israelites that came up out of Egypt wouldn't cross the Jordan and trust God to take the, the promised land. He's, he's renewing his covenant with these people, and he says to them this. Listen, he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, But to this day... The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. This is the fault of the original covenant. This is the limitation. I've entered into covenant with you. I've shown you what's expected of you. But you can't hear. You can't understand. You can't see. 
And, and, and all around this, you go read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and you're going to begin to see how, how God's shown them. He says, you've seen it, you've experienced it, you've walked through the wilderness, your shoes didn't wear out, your clothes didn't wear out, you've had food falling from heaven. But you're unable to understand you're unable to hear it. You're unable to see it. You're unable to understand it. You, you just can't get it. But he's renewing this covenant, and he's about to stop the waters of the Jordan so that they can cross over the Jordan on dry ground and enter into Canaan, the promised land. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus then comes on the scene, just as a note, Jesus comes on the scene, and, and he's beginning to teach, and what does he often say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is, a connect, this, this is his work. This is what he's doing. So, so we see, okay, here's the problem. Now here's the problem in the Old Covenant. But then we move into the New Testament. We begin to see the strength of the, the, the New Covenant. And, and much later, much, much later, after Paul, has, who, Paul, who grew up under the Old Covenant, Jesus transformed him on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by the light that he was confronted with Jesus by. He ends up on the house on Straight Street. He's visited, and, and as, as, as he's being talked to, and, and, and he's hearing what's gone on in Christ, it's like scales fall from his eyes, and his eyes are open. He can suddenly see, he can suddenly understand. And he writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. The fault was not with the law, the fault was with the flesh. Because we were unable to obey, we didn't desire to obey, we couldn't stop disobeying. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then it goes on to show us how we are transformed. Utterly transformed from the inside out. Equipped and enabled, empowered to live in this new life. As a new people, as God's people. A famous quote often attributed to John Bunyan. He catches this sentiment really well. Run, John, run, the law commands. That's the old covenant. Run, John, run, the law commands. But gives us neither feet nor hands. Our better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Where, where the old covenant gives the command and the command is right and it's good and it's expressing the holiness and power and majesty of God. It never equips or enables a person to obey it. But the gospel and the covenant that God has established in it doesn't even command us even higher or even greater. It actually makes us able to do the very thing he calls us to do. So why is the covenant new, this, this new covenant greater? Because it is not faulted like that of the old. Why is this new covenant greater? Because the new covenant is founded on greater promises. And this is specifically what he's seeking to address here. And you can see it begin in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. For after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from least to greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And so I'm going to do this just a little bit out of order, but just because of the logical flow, I think it makes a little, for, for me it makes a little bit more sense. And again, since I'm the one standing up here, here we go. Verse 11 calls out the knowing of God. We will all know from the least to the greatest. We will know God. These are the new covenant promises. These, these promises that, that, that are establishing the, the foundation of the work that God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. We will know Him. There's a distinction to be made between the law made with Israel and the law made with in and through Christ. With God's people in and through Christ. Everyone in this covenant will be one who knows God. There will be regeneration. There will be people who are in this. And there will be no one in this covenant that don't already know God because they have been made to know him by him. We will know him because he's made us know him. Every member of this covenant. The covenant with the old covenant had people in the covenant that followed all the rituals but never knew the God of the covenant. This covenant is distinct in that we will all know God, least to the greatest. And so the, here's the beauty of this. Your kids at a young age can come to know God, not because you're such a great parent, but because God, maybe because God gave them such a great parent, but because God's the one that brings knowledge of himself to people. That's why Jesus says, don't forsake these children to come unto me. Because God can make, I, I mean, John the Baptist is a great example. It seems to be regenerate from before he was ever born. Because as soon as Mary enters the room with Jesus in her womb, 
John the Baptist in, in, in Elizabeth's womb jumps and leaps for joy. He knew the Savior. We know God from the least to the greatest. That's, you can see that in verse 11. They all know him. We will desire God's ways. Well, look at verse 10. For this covenant that I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What didn't happen in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, where he says, I have not given you a, a heart to understand, I'm sorry, a heart to understand, eyes to see, and ears to hear, is going to happen in this new covenant. He's talking about this mind that, that gets it and this heart that understands it and these, this, this center of the will and desire suddenly. It's not his law, his, his expectation of us, his rules for us, his, his walking in holiness and righteousness. It's no longer some external thing that's brought to us, but it's an, an eternal desire that comes from within us. So yes, when we live in life as a, as a Christian people and as we stand together as a church, we should be able to reasonably expect obedience to God's word. We should be able to reasonably expect, say, hey, you know, God's word calls us to live this way. And we should be able to reasonably expect a desire for obedience to that to come from his people. Now, I, I say this with caution because we're all at different levels of maturity and some of us are still infants in the faith, learning to walk, learning, learning to crawl. Maybe some of us just learning to roll over. But the idea is that we train from that infant stage of faith to the place where we're all growing to maturity. So that we're all walking in this holiness together. That's the point. That we, we grow up and we see this desire for God's way, for God's holiness, His righteousness to be expressed in our lives. Because His law is written on our hearts, it's in our minds. We understand it, we know it, and we desire it. Verse 10 also highlights union with God. I love this. I will be there God, and they will be my people. Just think about that. We belong to him. There's intimacy there. He belongs to us. There's a, there's a way in which God is God to everyone. Everyone is going to answer to God. There's only one that really, truly exists. And at some point, sometime in life, everyone is going to answer to God. And he is going to be God. But this speaks of an intimate union, a relationship together. I'm going to be theirs and they are going to be mine. And then finally, the promise of forgiveness from God. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Verse 12. Tell me that doesn't mean something to you. That tomorrow morning, if you wake up and you don't sin, can you, can you even imagine that? No. That sin's forgotten. It's not held against you. It's not brought up and rubbed in your face the next time you have a little spat with God because you're still an infant or a child, sometimes even biting the hand that feeds you. That sin is dealt with. It's completely wiped away. He's forgiven you. That means every ounce of his work towards you holds no judgment or condemnation. That's why Paul, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. No judgment for those of us in Christ Jesus because through Jesus Christ, God fully, 100%, completely, perfectly forgiven. And all he's called us to do is trust in the one, keep our eyes on the one, believe in the one, his covenant mediator, Jesus, his son. The old covenant came in. It came with promises of blessings. It came with, with blessings for God's people. But it didn't come with this transformative and powerful promise of, of knowing God fully and, and desiring God's ways from the inside out or union with, in, in relationship with God or, or forgiveness from God in this complete, full way. 
It didn't, it didn't have all of these promises. And so these promises are better than what was offered before because God's promises, God's, God's ability to accomplish, even through his promise, is so much greater than ours to achieve through the greatest of our works. It's not ever going to happen. And so this new covenant is greater because God's promises in it are greater. That's what makes this covenant, this, covenant, this new covenant so great. And then finally, one last ideal or idea that I think the author highlights here that makes this covenant so great is in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You don't even have the right to go and live in a Judaistic, tra- Judaistic tradition. You don't even have the right to go to the foot of Mount Sinai and say, God, let me live by this law, because that is obsolete. It's done. It's finished. It's vanishing away. But the new covenant still stands and is available to all who believe today. It's eternal. It's lasting, standing. That first, that old covenant's done. It's, it's obsolete. It doesn't exist. I know that there's plenty of people in the world that still are living by this Judaistic tradition and believing that in some way that's going to earn them favor or earn them something from God or maintain their relationship with God. I don't think the writer of Hebrews allows us to even make that case. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That's why we need to be out preaching Jesus. Because there's lots of people in the world that know about God, but don't know about the new covenant sent, that Jesus was sent to mediate and, and, and re- reconcile us to God. Look, the old, old covenant, it was, it was great in its own right, but it's done. So, so let me encourage you, as the author of Hebrews has encouraged us, don't run back to the Old Testament looking for ways to justify yourself before God. Don't try to step into that covenant and think, oh, I, I can do this. I can bear myself up by my bootstraps. I can obey this law without first trusting, following Jesus Christ. I, don't, let me encourage you, don't make up a way of your own. To interact with God. Well, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. As if that's the standard. Well, you never murdered, so come on into heaven. I, I, I'm a good person. I don't really, my, 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 my sin doesn't harm anybody. I, I'm pretty good. Compared to who? Hitler? Yeah, okay, that's pretty easy. Child molester? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm better than the, the, the molester. Can you stand on equal footing with Christ? Can you stand next to him of your own accord and your own will in full and complete obedience, having finished the work of sanctification all on your own? Don't, don't, don't make up a new set of rules and try to interact and in, engage with God based upon those. This covenant stands. There's no need for a covenant to follow it. It's not faulted like the first. It stands still today. So come to Christ. Look upon Christ. Consider Christ. Confess your sin and trust in him. as a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul, for the great forerunner of your faith, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the, 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 the apostle and high priest of our confession. Trust in him and him alone. Let's pray.